Greetings and welcome to Resistance Recovery. Resistance Recovery is dedicated to the exploration of any and all topics related to recovery, spirituality, and culture. Join us as we interview thought leaders working at the edges of cultural transformation. My name is Piers Kanuka, and I'll be your host. So I'm finally here, been long looking forward to this conversation amongst friends. So we are here with my good buddy, the Reverend Andy Stinson and Dr. Edward Tick. And we are here to discuss Dr. Tick's Ed's newest book. But I think uh, as a way of finding ourselves into that conversation, maybe some introductions are in order. So... Andy, why don't you just let the folks know who you are and what you do? Sure, I am. Uh, my name is Andy Stinson. I am from uh, uh, Fall River, Massachusetts, right now. I am down. I am serving as uh, the, the pastor of First Congregational Church in Fall River. I have I've been ordained for about twenty years. Of that, about uh, fifteen of it was spent as a uh, chaplain in the Army Reserve, and I spent about seven years on active duty. Um, in that time, and uh, uh, spent some time overseas in Iraq, and uh, first first encountered Ed Tick when I uh, was uh, was new to my office in Iraq, and there were a few books that were held over on on the shelf, and there was one of them was uh, was Ed's uh, Ed's book on the warrior, and so we encountered uh, that, and then uh, through many other ways that spirits brought us together, uh, it's been a uh, it is, he's been uh, one of the great, uh, great healers of my life, just on a personal level, and one of the great mentors of, uh, of, of uh, understanding the way of the warrior and understanding what it means to care for them, because uh, a lot of people want to, but few know how, and I think Ed knows how, and, uh, and, um, and that all of that wisdom has been uh, uh, very hard earned, and um, so I am very grateful to to call him uh, call him friend and and uh, and be on the journey with him. And so, um, and I was just excited about today to be able to uh, to uh, be a part of this conversation, um, having been a you know a, a, a chaplain in the you know um, you know in both in a combat theater and and outside and and uh, uh, having witnessed the real impact. Of his work um, through my ability to uh, to carry it uh, has been very real. So um, so that's uh, that's kind of what brings me here today. Thank you. And Ed, please tell us tell us about your your work. All right. Well, thank you, Piers, and thank you, Andy. Uh, I'm honored to be with both of you. And. Uh, well, first, I want to thank you, Andy. Uh, you kind of just introduced me, and I feel, <laughs> I feel humbled, and I don't want to say anything else uh, except to, uh, I really would love to sing the praises of my two friends and brothers here. Andy and Piers have both been extraordinary brothers and colleagues and uh, fellow warrior servants uh, on this healing journey that we are all committed to. Uh, regarding my own work, uh, I am a uh, 
an archetypal and transformational psychotherapist, a writer and poet, an international journey guide, uh, peace activist, and uh, war and warrior healer. And I put all those together somehow. Uh, I've been working, my, my two areas of specialty, uh, my greatest contributions, I would say, are, as Andy shared, my contributions to understanding and bringing really uh, quite significant, profound, complex understanding of what a warrior is, of um, what our warriors offer in the very positive sense, and what our warriors suffer in their deep, invisible wounding from military service and warfare. Um, we'll be talking about that a lot today. My other main area of um, contribution is that I extensively use several uh, spiritual traditions and legacies uh, in healing work. Um, I am expert in ancient Greece, ancient Greek um, mythology, history, philosophy, culture, spiritual practices, and Vietnamese Buddhist practices and Native American practices. I've been trained and initiated in all of those and use them in the healing efforts. Um, I'm most strongly aligned with what we understand to be the archetypal or transpersonal schools of psychology, where we're not just looking at our own lives um, and our everyday lives. We're certainly not just looking at our dysfunctions and pathologies and wounds, but rather we're looking at the universal dimensions of our life experience and what psycho-spiritual cultural uh, experiences that we're having that shape us and that will continue to shape us in positive ways so that we can really become who we're meant to be and fulfill our destinies. So bringing the poetic, humanistic, spiritual in meaningful ways into the healing process using these ancient traditions and especially applying them to all of the needs uh, and um, blessings and gifts uh, that our warriors have and can offer us are my um, most important contributions. Uh, I've been a therapist for, oh goodness, for about 45 years. I've been working with our veterans since the end of uh, the Vietnam War. Uh, I began several years before post-traumatic stress disorder was even a diagnosis that was established in 1980. I began working with our vets in, in the 70s, the mid 70s. That war ended in 75. And from the very beginning, I knew and I saw, understood <clears throat> that we don't have the psychology in place to understand our warriors. Other cultures and traditions do have warrior spirituality, warrior psychology, and to genuinely take care of uh, their warriors in complex and beautiful and spiritually and community-based ways. And this is both ancient and some cultures in the present uh, world in contemporary times. And so I've been restlessly traveling the world, working with these other cultures, studying the ways of the warrior and the ways traditional cultures um, prepared them, supported them, and especially successfully brought them home and discharged their trauma. So they came home strong and became strong, healthy, contributing warriors throughout the whole life cycle. And I've been applying those principles to uh, working with our warriors today. Uh, my books, War in the Soul and Warriors Return, as Andy mentioned, have been 
influential with our military and veteran world and in the trauma field. Uh, and uh, it's rather astonishing, but um, I'm not, I wasn't in the military myself. I was protesting the Vietnam War. And this work is very much a continuation of that with the same values of honoring the warrior, but protesting their immoral and abusive uses and how we misuse and manipulate them and then uh, put them in positions where PTSD and moral injury are inevitable. Um, but I have worked closely with the military and um, Andy and I, as he shared, met while he was serving and while I was doing uh, chaplain training for our military. So I am happy to say that uh, even the military has somewhat listened to my work and made significant use of it. And I did spend several years training uh, the entire US Army Chaplain Corps, uh, as well as um, Air Force Special Forces and National Guard uh, Chaplain Corps in this holistic and spiritual approach to healing our warriors. So with that beginning, I think I would like all of our listeners and friends out there to know that we affirm that what we call post-traumatic stress disorder is a wound, but it's not a pathology and it's definitely not a mental illness. It's a transformation that when we understand it correctly and deeply enough and respond to it in the right ways, becomes a profound initiatory experience and a transformation into a higher, more complex uh, and mature identity. And so I work with that way and so do my good colleagues and friends here. And we will be exploring these matters together with you today. Well, maybe to get a little more, um, you know, interpersonal, what, what, when you met Ed's work, Andy, what, what, what was going on with you and, and what did it bring to your experience that you hadn't gotten anywhere else? Yeah, well, I come out of, I am trained in the, in the Swedenborgian tradition, which, you know, um, it has a deep sense of symbol, a deep sense of of um, the the power of the archetypal world, and that if you want to put it that way, a deep a deep belief in the reality of spirit. Um, not that you know we talk about the the spiritual world, not as a um, not as an abstract, but as a reality in which we're interacting and with to which we uh, we are are in constant connection. Um, so that's kind of my that's the that's the, the the kind of my part and and largely in the chaplaincy, you know, I, I would keep that in my kit bag as certainly interacting with warriors and all and and, uh, and but it wasn't necessarily something I would showcase or could showcase um, because it's all you know that's certainly not everybody's uh, wheelhouse. And, um, but to hear Ed's work um, was to me like a homecoming um, at that moment to be able to, to, uh, um, you know, to, to recognize kind of this, uh, you know, for, for, you know, for lack of a better term, just, just the, the larger Jungian reality of the world, which is, you know, I think that's a way we can talk about it that we all understand is to, is to, uh, is to be able to say that, uh, and to hear that in a, in a way that um, was not at all, um, you know, that can often get, um, 
I, I don't want to say insulting, but it can often get in this way of, particularly in the warrior class, of saying, you know, a, a more of a kind of pat on the head of like, oh, you're just, you're just embodying this, you know, you're just embodying this archetype, or you're just doing this, but, and, and, you know, you're just kind of playing out this script, or some kind of way in which it, dimin it, it is a diminishment, and, you know, the, the genius and really the beauty of Ed's work is that he, uh, he, he completely flips the script on that and really says, no, actually, you are embodying an archetype. And you know what? There's almost no one in society that is truly embodying archetypes anymore, except for the warrior class. And like, and that, and so to really elevate it in that, in, in, in a sense of, in a high psychological sense, in a high spiritual sense, um, was transformative for not just myself, but to see my peers, you know, I come to this with some language for it, but, you know, a lot of my peers who didn't, who come from, you know, different traditions and that sort of stuff, didn't have that kind of language, but their ability to, but every, but I could watch the room, you know, I can remember the first training we went to where, you know, we're all, and I think it was in Norfolk, Virginia, and we're all kind of stuffed into a room and, you know, and we you know, you, you do like the dignitaries come in and they kind of tell you how you're, you know, all the things are going on. And then Ed comes in and you could just see the sea change in the room of what happened because he's speaking to the, to the reality in which we're all trying to minister and we're all trying to care for this community. And we, and we are a part of the community too. And um, all of a sudden uh, somebody is putting names to things that um, everybody in that room knows. And that that was, um, you know, so for me, it was kind of a homecoming. For other people, it was truly an, an awakening um, to begin to have language for ways that they never, ever thought. Um, and for things they knew but couldn't articulate. Like, that's what I thought was so powerful. Is they, were, they were, you know, and, and um, you know, what is it we say about logos? Like the, you know, the really real, you know, things are often so real that we, you know, the things that are really real, we don't, we can't talk about, we act out, you know, we mm -hmm. act out, we act out the things that are really real in our life. You know, we act out, you know, those are, the, those are the things that, and that, and that you have here, you have this room of chaplains who are, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, medicine chiefs in their own right, warrior, you know, warrior priests, whatever you want, you know, um, you know, um, you know, warrior monks, however you want to, however you want to frame that, you know, here they are living this thing out and all of a sudden, you know, and then somebody starts to put language to that. And uh, it was, you know, it was a, it was a, you know, I, I mean, you know, the one I attended in that context was water, was a watershed and, and, um, and it was, and it's true. And, you know, like it was, you know, and it's almost like, you know, I think back now of my time in doing, you know, like, in some ways too, there was like, it, it became, you know, Ed's book was interesting because it was, it almost became a, a, a um, like a totem or a key, like that if you had, you would kind of, because if you went into a, your peer's office, you would kind of scan their bookshelf because <laughs> that's how you knew, you know, like you knew who you were dealing with, you know, and it's yeah. like, you know, and if Warren the Soul was there, you're like, okay, we can probably have a conversation. You know, there was this way in which it became that sort of thing, so. Well, I'm thinking about our audience, you know, um, Jung once quipped, um, the myth is the medicine. Mm. And so I think when I look at Ed's work, it's working very much out of that realization. But I guess I, a question I have, Ed, is the nature of the loss of the myth. I mean, we can push that back to the enlightenment and so on and so forth and the nature of, of, of 20th century warfare and things like that. 
But it even seems like in the Civil War, the myth was much more operative than it is now. And, and it's really, it's like the warriors, well, not just warriors, but we don't have myths that we live by. And could you just speak a little bit to the loss of that myth? Sure. <clears throat> myth is a kind of a universal psychology. It's much earlier than psychology, of course. It's not conceptual, it's story. Yeah. Uh, and the figures in the myths are the archetypes that we all have that live in us and that live through us. And Andy was uh, right on target in using the word embodied. Uh, when we tend to study, well, psychology or mythology, uh, we, we are 21st century people who have become mostly rational and conceptual and left brain oriented. So we interpret the myths, uh, well, we say mythology is old superstition to, uh, that pre-scientific people use to explain things they don't understand. That reduces mythology um, to, to, to superstition, to ignorance, to uh, early garbage can um, material that we don't need to take seriously anymore. That's a completely wrong understanding of mythology that is filtered by our modern secular consciousness. And as you rightly said, uh, has been developing since at least the enlightenment. Mythology is much, much more than that. Um, the myths show us the universal principles at work in the universe, the deep psychological principles at work in us and in culture. And they are presented as in stories and images, which Andy rightly also points out is in, in the root of, psycho of, of spirituality. And in fact, uh, images are the language of the soul. The soul doesn't think. It took a long, long time. And the Greek enlightenment only 2,500 years ago to, to really become rational people that break away from our immersion in the logos and in the universal web and can abstract and distance and conceptualize. So being in mythology, living with mythology uh, brings us connection, brings us uh, understanding and meaning, helps us guide our lives. And we're living and embodying myths, whether we realize it or not. Mm -hmm. uh, all of us, we all come from dysfunctional families and we all think our families ought to be sane and, and, and um, healthy and what went wrong in my family when most other people probably come from same families? Right. Uh, read the Bible, <laughs> read Greek mythology, read any uh, mythological tradition, and we see families have always been confused, relationships have always been uh, troubling and difficult. The human shadow always comes to the surface, and throughout history, not just now, brother turns against brother, parent against child, neighbor against neighbor, and we really are profoundly ambivalent creatures with both light and dark sides. And we're really responsible. The myths give us guidance for understanding that and have it and being and understanding the myths that we're living, we're embodying. Andy mentioned the warrior priest. Um, warrior priest is uh, an archetypal and a mythic identity that recurs throughout civilizations. 
Um, the more we understand it and how it worked in other societies, the more we can empower our own chaplains like Andy to really serve as warrior priests who in traditional cultures were among the most important and the most powerful of the, um, the, the tribal officials. The churches and our religions became the repositories of mythology and living religion is supposed uh, in any of any denomination is supposed to give people a living spiritual mythic experience. So when we go to church on Easter, we're supposed to be experiencing Jesus's agony and abandonment and then victory and resurrection as we go through the ritual. That's true for the Hajj when people uh, go on their pilgrimage to Mecca. That's true for the Passover Seder for, for Jews. We're supposed to, and we're told, the liturgy even says, it is as if you were, li were liberated from Egypt by God. Feel it, experience it that way. That's what makes uh, living ritual. However, as you rightly said, Peers, uh, people don't believe that or experience that anymore. And since the Enlightenment, these have just become ideas, concepts, rather than living realities that we're experiencing. So as much as the secular world celebrates our liberation from the dominance of religion, we've also lost living myth and we've lost meaningful, vital communities that experience and facilitate that myth together. And so my work and our work together is to try to restore living mythology in a meaningful way to not only our warriors, but uh, to all contemporary people so that we can again feel connected to the universe and unfold our deep psychology with the symbols that express it and give it meaning. Modern psychology is full of symbols the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, is a profoundly symbol. I love your expression, brother. <laughs> it's a profoundly symbolic system, but it renders all of our human conditions pathological. Jung said, you're right to quote him earlier, he also said, uh, suffering isn't illness, but we render suffering as illness now. Mm -hmm. And the the two categories that we have retained for people who are suffering are either, uh, well, mentally ill or when you can't stand it anymore and you're acting out, then you're criminal. So the legal system and the mental health system catch us instead of wise priests and healers who know how to guide the human conflict that we're experiencing and can use spirituality and mythology and the stories of the world to connect us to the human reality that we're all experiencing. Yeah, it feels like the trials and tribulations of, um, I think Andy can speak to this more than I can, but it applies to me too, of bringing the mythic or transpersonal dimension into our work as, as ministers and whatever the hell I am, addict guy. Um, it's very different than, you know, because there's no, there's nothing organic except the psyche itself, which is living in these archetypal things, but doesn't know it. But when you're trying to bring this dimension back 
into a context that doesn't support it or acknowledge it. I mean, it seems like we're being challenged in a way that human beings really hadn't been before. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, I mean, I think you're, you're, you're on point, you know, I mean, this is, you know, I think you see this kind of begin to evolve and I mean, Nietzsche gets, gets it right. Kind of when he, when he kind of didacts kind of where we're going with the, with the collapse of the mythic. And I think, and, and, but, you know, I, I'm curious to get both of your takes on this because this has been an idea that I've been thinking about for a little bit. And I think it, and, and it, and it, it speaks, I think, to what our, what some of maybe what our tasks are is that, you know, we're looking at a time when we don't have the mythic, you know, if we're, where, where the mythic is, is lost. And I think if you look at, well, then if we look at that, well, what was the world prior to, prior to the adoption of the mythic? I mean, it really, it was the animistic is what you end up with. And so what that means is, it means everything is a god. Everything is sacralized. That, that uh, Cardi B is not a pop star. Cardi B is a goddess. She's a household god. Um, you know, uh, the, you know the, the, you're not just a Patriots fan, but you are a true Patriot. And and in by being a part of that, like the Patriots become a god. But I mean, it's I, I'm I'm not. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but it's but if you look at how people are actually living their lives, that is an actual reality. That people are putting more effort, energy, uh, uh, mental power, you know, emotional concern into their affiliation of being a Patriots fan than they are into their church or their or their spiritual path or their uh their understanding that that we're not we're not in you know we we talk a lot about we're in this post um you know either post religious world or post spiritual world or post um whatever how you want to frame that world um and or post christian world or post judeo-christian world you know there's a number of different ways to talk about it mm-hmm. but i actually think we're we're what and what that means is it doesn't mean that there are no gods it means that we're actually the world starts to look a lot more like it did you know as you know uh you know kind of talking about your book as as kind of epsclus was coming onto the scene and kind of dry you know bringing out of uh, you know, out of creation, this uh, this logos idea, this idea that there's a really real that transcends um, just my household god. You know, my desire, my de- my desire of the day, and that that becomes my god, and that um, all of that. You know, so I think you know, I think we're in this. You know, I think we're we're much more like, you know, uh, you know, Paul and the Areopagus of like, you know, there's a whole bunch, of, there's a ton of things that people are worshiping, a ton. And that, um, and that, the, the, you know, how we point to the really real, like how we point to the logos um, is about, you know, um, is about kind of weaving or either, either telling again or retelling the, you know, the story of stories, the, the greatest, you know, the, 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 the greatest of, of um, you know, so I, I just want to get your take on that because I've been playing with this idea for a while. I've got, I've, you know, Len Sweet's talked about it some, some other people have talked about it some, and I've been pulling pieces and parts from it. And, and I, I'm really starting to be more and more convinced that we are, we're really, really are operating in more of an animistic world in a, which sacralizes everything, which everything is a God, like everything that we give our attention to asks, it asks us to worship it, doesn't ask us to be in relationship with it, which is a different like it's a whole, you know, and that, and that that's what happens when you don't have myth. Like that's what happens when you don't have an overarching story. 
to which we say, you know, yes, I am, you know, this is where I come from. This is where I am. And this is where I'm going. And I know this on my journey, you know, that I am, a, you know, um, you know, and, and, you know, it, that in the past 500 years, that's always kind of been talked about as like, I'm a person of the book, whether the, whether that book is, you know, whether it's the Quran, whether it's, you know, Torah, whether it's Bible, whether it's the Methodist book of discipline, whether it's uh, Gita, whether it doesn't matter what the book is, it's more the sense of, I have a, I have a sense of where, I'm, where I come from, I have a sense of where I am, I have a sense of where I'm going. Having lost that, we're now in this animistic kind of idea. And I'm curious what your thoughts about that, because it's just been something I've been playing with, but I don't know if, I don't know if it's true, but I think it is. And I think it changes how we do this work. I mean, I really, I mean, I think it's changes. I appears, I think it changes how you work with addicts because you don't have a story, like, you know, a story you can plug them into. Like you really, and you know, I think it's how we different, how we deal with, with warriors. I think it's different of, you know, mm -hmm. how I pastor a church because even the folks of the church have been enculturated in this culture and don't necessarily even know their own story. Even if they are, even if they're, even if they're acting it out, you know, um, anyway, that's, that was a lot, but I'm curious no, about your thoughts about that. That's great. Anyone, yeah. go for it. Uh, and you're right on target, Andy. And a major problem, not just for our warriors, but anybody surviving trauma in our culture, is that story is shattered, narrative is shattered, and what we all end up living, in, uh, and it's uh, quite a distortion and an illusion is our own individual stories separated from family separated from community from culture from history from tradition from spirituality and unaware of the archetypal lives that we're living so much of the work um, that we do is at, by returning mythology we are returning a, the universal story that our own survivors are part of. So when I'm working with warriors, I'm not just working with their experience, I'm working with them as the contemporary embodiment of the warrior archetype in American history that traces all the way back to the revolution and to the Minutemen as an early embodiment. And of course, before that to the Native Americans who have been warrior cultures in here for thousands of years. So our warriors are actually continuous with that, but they don't think that way, they're not taught that. And even more, when we teach them a world warrior tradition and they identify with that, they do find their place in the narrative and they realize I'm the contemporary embodiment of a tradition many thousands of years old. Mm -hmm. So I take them uh, overseas um, and well, when I lead trips to Vietnam, our warriors and their warriors reconcile as brothers and sisters who have survived the same hell and are actually part of the same story and now need to tell the whole world the same story. When I take warriors to Greece and uh, well, uh, I've been in Greece on Veterans Day several times with warrior groups. We've been at Thermopylae at the grave of the Spartans on Veterans Day. You need to, I wish you could see how our warriors honor the Spartans and connect their story to the Spartans, like uh, special, um, I've had special, our special forces veterans standing in front of the grave saying uh, to the Spartans, you are really the special forces of the ancient world. 
and I'm just uh, a weak imitation of what you brought into the world thousands of years ago. But more importantly than that, our veterans stand in front of the grave of the Spartans and they salute, they give honorific ceremony to these people who fell 2,400 years ago and they say, I wish I were here with you because you were truly living the warrior archetype. You're, you're, you were raised to be a warrior from childhood. It wasn't imposed on you after you would become a civilian. Your entire identity and, and uh, development was shaped by warriorhood. Your community completely trained you, prepared you, supported you before you served. You served in combat only as the absolute last resort to defend the country against invasion when all diplomacy had failed and you knew you were gonna die and you accepted that joyously in service to our people, knowing the people were gonna survive. And you have been honored, memorialized, respected and served as role models ever since your, your fall from your culture and from now for thousands of years for, for the world. We American veterans didn't get any of that from our people, from our military, from our education, from our upbringing. So that's an example of growing up in a warrior culture with an intact mythology that supports the warrior all the way through. And in contrast, the way we do it, highly individualized, demythologized, desacralized, um, so that the narrative falls apart. When, uh, when um, even without severe trauma, the narrative falls apart because it's incomplete. Right. And then you're supposed to become a civilian again where the stories and the mythology doesn't even exist. The, the civilians don't right. even know it. They just want you to be another civilian. Right. Uh, and cool. I want to take, I, can I personalize this a little more? <laughs> I, I'm going to pick on both of you a little bit. Piers, you, you respectfully said Andy is a warrior priest, and then you called yourself the attic guy. <laughs> okay, it mythologize your role. You're not the attic guy, you're actually a medicine man. You're a medicine man, we call alcohol spirits, mm -hmm. we call drugs spirits. People are using substances that we call spirits because their spiritual life is suffering. Mm -hmm. And a medicine man knows the good medicines and the bad medicines and the spirituality people are really seeking and guides them on their journey to heal from the bad medicines and love the good medicines and love their journey. Mm -hmm. You are a medicine man and that is an archetypal role that goes back to Neolithic times. That's you. And Andy, you are a warrior priest, and we use that phrase together, but we both know and affirm that warrior priests have always been warrior, uh, with warriors since, since ancient Samaria. We can't have warriors without priests accompanying them. Hmm. When we read the Bible, we see that priests always accompanied the ancient warriors into battle and prayed for them while the battle was going on and tended them immediately afterwards. In the Native American tradition, I'll tell briefly a story of Sitting Bull, who was one of my great teachers. Uh, Sitting Bull said, well, before I even tell you that, 
In the Lakota language, what we call PTSD, they named Narinapeapi, which literally means the spirits left, the spirits left him. So they didn't say he has post-traumatic stress disorder and this is what's wrong with his brain. They said that warrior experienced so much hideous violence that his spirit left, his spirit fled. And our job is to restore the spirit. It's in inherently and essentially a spiritual effort. So within that context, Sitting Bull was, among his other roles, he was medicine chief of the Hung Papa Warrior Society. And he said, more important than being the head chief of all the Lakota people, more important than being a warrior myself, the medicine chief of warriors was the most important role I played because if our warriors are well, our people will be well. If we are well internally and our warriors are put back together and helping us keep the common wheel together and continuing to serve us and protect us, uh, we'll be fine. And the definition of warriors to Sitting Bull and his people were, it's not someone who fights to kill. Sitting Bull said, even though he took many lives, he said, uh, a warrior's essential job isn't to kill because nobody has a right to, to take another life. And what we conclude from that is that moral injury is inevitable. It's not, doesn't happen just when you're following bad orders. Moral injury comes from taking life, from destroying. And we all have to be healed from that. Uh, so Sitting Bull said the ascent, a, a warrior is essentially a person who takes care of the elderly, the infirm, the ill, and the children and protects the future of humanity. That's what we do. That's what warriors do when they return, when they're healed, and they serve for life. So just like our Marines say, once a Marine, always a Marine, we really have to say and teach our warriors, once a warrior, always a warrior, this is an honorable archetypal role that has existed throughout history and it's built into the cosmos. And our use of the warrior archetype in our culture has been maligned and abused. And so we want to restore the warrior archetype in you to a spiritually fulfilled and healthy and strong uh, inner spiritual presence. So you, my friend, are a medicine man and you, my other friend, are a warrior priest. And we work together to restore this imagery because it matches what the soul is doing here. Mm -hmm. And it allows us to experience a living spirituality and a destiny that connects us to community and to the universe. Well, you guys got my head popping. <laughs> so I'm sitting here listening to this and there's so much, it's so rich. Um, I just want to go back a little bit to Andy's point about uh, kind of a emergent animism, you know, so all, quite a few scholars use this notion of particip participatory mystique. And that's the ability to, you know, an older psychology would say to cathect energy into something, whether that be a stone or a movie star or the weather. And what I've been noticing is I agree with you. People don't stop cathecting because we're in a demythologized world. They simply cathect on other things. 
um, the household gods. Know, that was what that was. It's the household gods. I mean, that was what the, right. you know, it's the, it becomes so localized, so personalized. It's not, yeah. you know. But what, what we have now is the effect on this. Yep. And so we're seeing this sort of interfacing with the machine, the sort of, you know, the AI thing is not science fiction. It's, it's really happening. Um, so you have this confecting, and then Ed brings up this point that's really interesting about rampant individualism. And then I look at the kind of work, especially the work you do, Ed, but also, well, all of us, but in this age of rampant individualism, you know, there's a sort of, it's uh, the meta-narrative, the overarching narrative, the grand narrative is become politically incorrect because it's, it's perceived to be hegemonic and um, violating the individuality, you know? So we live in this time where your right to claim your identity is, that is sacred, regardless of where you come from, where you are, and you know, all of this. So it seems like there's a real cross, uh, a real pushback against what we're all trying to do. And then also when Ed was talking, what really got me was um, the degree to which living archetypally or working consciously with archetypes is by its very nature um, embodied. It only happens in bodies. Trauma only happens in a body. Addiction only happens in a body. Getting on your knees to pray happens in a body. And I think that that sometimes when people are approaching depth psychology or Jungian psychology or archetypal, they tend to think it's very abstract. It's working with those things, as you said, were already consigned to the garbage heap of history. You know, so you're just, you know, you're wearing masks or something. Um, so I guess we're kind of moving in a way where I think we can start talking a little bit about Ed's more recent work in that the dream brings us into relationship with the archetypes in a way that is not just us possibly being consumers of archetypes, meaning I'm going to wear what I think is cool or, you know, the, the identity thing, co-opting the archetypal on some level. When you're in the dream, the dream has its way with you. Um, so Ed, you wanna just maybe give us a little background on how you came to Asclepius and, and the dream, the dream work generally? Oh, happy to. Thank you for inviting that. And uh, these are embodied stories. It's so, when, as you shared, we're not talking about book learning. We're talking about lived experience that teaches us universal truths that we can then support, explore, reinforce with our book learning. So I'll, I'll share two stories briefly uh, about how I was initiated in the archetypal world. And the very first one was, uh, I was born in the Bronx in 1951. Uh, when I was four years old, my family lived in a tiny, tiny one-bedroom tenement apartment. Uh, 
I shared the little bedroom with my baby brother and my parents slept on the couch in the living room. Uh, in the middle of the night, with the elevated subway line rattling outside my window, uh, I woke up. Um, I woke up because I didn't wake up from a dream. I woke up because I knew something was in my room. And I was sitting awake in my bed. I saw my baby brother sleeping in the crib. And I looked around and I saw a magnificent, large, what looked like a psychedelic. I didn't know those with that word, but a butterfly made of psychedelic colors, like bejeweled and flying all over my room. It was magnificent. I sat up and watched it for a long time. Then I made an innocent mistake. I called my parents. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it, the butterfly disappeared and my parents poo-pooed it as a nightmare and told me to shut up and go back to sleep. So I didn't talk about it to another adult for decades, I think, but I always remembered it and it woke me up. It changed me. Dreams, when dreams are, now Jung differentiates between big dreams and little dreams. Little dreams in his psychology are our everyday dreams about our private lives, about the everyday, or uh, from our personal unconscious about our, our own life history, our own past, our own issues. Big dreams happen only occasionally, and they are when something divine, something transpersonal is breaking through and bringing us significant attention and trying to change us. I felt myself changed in, uh, in that butterfly vision uh, so that I was different. I knew there was an invisible world. I didn't know what to call it or how to talk about it. And I knew the people around me didn't get it and couldn't and wouldn't talk about it. And I had to protect it from them and protect my experience. I only learned very much later as an adult that the word for butterfly in ancient Greek is psyche. Psyche, which of course we have the word commonly and most people think it means mind and that means psychology is the study of the mind. No, for all of our friends out there, please know psyche means soul, 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 soul. And the butterfly was one of the images of the soul that was that uh, ancient Greece uh, in mythology gave to the soul to understand how it works in us. Uh, and at that time, I felt myself changed. I felt an influx of vital energy. I didn't know where it came from. I was just different. I was supercharged. And that's what happens when we have big dreams. When we see archetypal presence in the dreams, um, if we're open and receptive, it, again, it, as we said, all, all said, it's not just conceptual and not it's meant to be experienced, not analyzed, yeah. embodied, not just thought about. Um, so I'll leap forward to, to Greece and uh, how I became involved with dream healing in the ancient Greek tradition. Uh, and uh, you peers mentioned Asclepius. Um, my earlier book, The Practice of Dream Healing is uh, the most comprehensive book about Asclepius and the ancient dream healing tradition that has appeared actually since World War II, when during the late 40s, there was an explosion of interest in this 
uh, as a corrective and compensation for the horrors of World War II that Europe had just passed through. So a lot of Jungians and European uh, researchers and analysts were using this tradition. So it reawakened in our time of utmost need. Ah, to try to keep a long story short. <laughs> 1987, I went on a solo pilgrimage to Greece to study the ancient Greek citizen warrior tradition because I had been reading about it since I was a kid and studying it in books. Um, so I knew that Greeks had citizen warriors, that people served for, uh, well, until they were 60 years old. They were in militia for their city-state until they turned 60 and it was unsalaried. Everybody had to provide their own equipment, their arms, their uniform, their food. If they were cavalry, they had to provide their own horse. That wasn't from the state. People served to protect their beloved city and they sacrificed generously when it was necessary to protect their city. So that already is a profound difference. Well, um, I went to Greece to study the citizen warrior tradition. I went to the opening night of the ancient theater festival in the ancient site that's called, it's spelled Epidaurus. It's pronounced Epidavros. It was, it's got a huge, beautiful 14,000 seat theater that's still used today for summer theater festival, the ancient plays, um, and was used in ancient times. Epidavros was in ancient times, the principal healing sanctuary of ancient Greece, overseen by the god of healing and dream healing, Asclepius. I went there, I didn't know about Asclepius. I went for the opening night of the theater festival where I saw Euripides play the Trojan women <laughs> by torchlight in the ancient theater without any modern equipment in ancient Greek. And you used cathexis and catharsis so cathexis is the attachment to emotions and catharsis is the purgation and releasing them of them. I had been working with our veterans for about eight or 10 years by then. And I experienced an intense catharsis myself uh, of purging of my own accumulated emotions of sorrow, of pity, of terror, of grief that I had accumulated from 10 years of warrior work. And I had been working at that point uh, uh, up, um, mo almost exclusively with Vietnam veterans. This was back, yeah, 1987. So we, we didn't have many big wars yet after Vietnam, a lot of little ones. Uh, I lost my place, sorry. Oh yes, I also understood that night seeing the Trojan women, which was Euripides' play of protest against the Athenian atrocities committed in the Peloponnesian War, but he placed it in ancient Troy in the Trojan War. It's probably the, uh, well, one of the greatest anti-war plays ever written, and it shows the suffering of all of the victims, though Trojan women are the protagonists. So we see the suffering of the mothers, the grandmothers, the nobles, the slaves, the women being taken away into captivity, the families being torn apart, children being torn from their mothers like we're doing now. And we see it all. And it is portrayed in such vivid detail and extraordinary poetry. 
we can't help but feel it and it tears us to shreds and it should. What I learned that night was that all wars are embodiments, manifestations of the universal archetype of war. And all warriors are a manifestation of the one warrior archetype. It varies according to time and place and technology, but all wars are the same. I went into that theater thinking that I was a psychotherapist for Vietnam veterans. And I left the theater saying, no, my calling is to be a healer uh, of, of warriors, of all warriors, any warriors who cross my path. And that I have to learn as much as I can and embody experience the universal dimensions of this. And then I said, well, what is this theater and this play doing in a healing sanctuary? And what does it have to do with the God of healing? That led me to, uh, to um, explore Asclepius and the ancient Greek healing tradition, dream healing tradition, which as it turns out, but we don't know it here and we don't even teach it. And our medical schools don't even teach it. The dream healing tradition of ancient Greece overseen by the goddess Sclepius were the origins of medicine and psychology in the Western world. But they were rooted in dreams and in shamanic practices. They had holistic medicine. We in the West would have a holistic medicine as complex and beautiful as Ayurvedic medicine or Chinese medicine if this had been allowed to continue developing. It developed for over 2,000 years and then was crushed uh, and completely obliterated in the early Christian tradition. Uh, but if we had had another 2,000 years of development, who can imagine how beautiful and spiritually based medicine would be? Nonetheless, we can return to it and I have returned to it and I practice it. So I lead journeys to Greece where we visit the Asclepian sites. We practice what the Greeks called um, dream incubation which is ritual practices to facilitate big dreams. We don't have to only wait for them to happen according to the unfolding of the universe or chance or organic work uh, like happened to me with the butterfly. I don't know why I had it then, it just came. But in the Asclepian dream healing tradition and others like Native American vision questing, we actually, with support from the community and guidance from the priests, from the officiates, we go through intensive rituals to put us into altered states of consciousness so that we become receptive to and we receive big dreams. So I practice that. I bring people to Greece and we visit the sites, we facilitate the rituals, and people always have big dreams that are profoundly relevant to their personal life journeys, to the destiny that's trying to unfold, and to the deep wounds that they're looking to heal. Uh, and so this returns us to the deep psyche and the archetypal roots of psychology and medicine that we've lost, but we can restore. Andy, did you have a question or a comment? I, you know, I just, it, it makes me think of where you were, you know, one of the things that, that lit up for me in, in your writing was um, uh, when you start talking about uh, the, uh, the symptom being a symbol 
and that this, um, you know, and I think, you know, it appears I, I, I have to, you know, I know, you know, I've worked with enough folks in addiction to know that, you know, that, that there's this whole way in which the thing that is, you know, the thing, you know, your, your belly hurting or your head hurting or your whatever hurting is, is this way in which it has this deep resonance with our inner being and what's actually going on with us and in us and, and through us and for us and all of that. And, and so, you know, I, I, I wanted it, I, you know, what, you know, that, that, that sense of, of what you were just saying about um, uh, this, this kind of journey into the dream, into the big dream. Um, I'm, you know, I'm wondering how, like, I, I kind of just want, I think I just want you to say more about that, about this, this, this interaction between the, the kind of the big dream and the symptom um, being the symbol. Cause that's, I know personally for my work with warriors, um, you know, uh, you know, I can remember one just guy who was, he was a special operator and he'd been places and done things. And um, there was this people that there were these people that showed up to him and dream every night. And they were people that he had killed and they showed up every night and, and they weren't supposed to be killed and he had killed them. And, and I, you know, and he says, you know, and they visit me every night. And so I simply said to him, I said, well, what do they want? He says, well, I don't know. I says, well, ask them, right. you know, and be, be in relationship with them. And so there was this way that, and that, that began a whole journey for him of just rather than being stuck in this loop of, of this recurring, you know, where this, these, um, he was having this recurring tormenting dream that to step into it um, and to engage the dream became for him this really, I mean, it was this, this very powerful journey that he ended up going on. And it was simply, you know, the, 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 you know, it was simply that that sense of, you know, the, the, the thing that we call the problem is actually the, or the symptom is actually the, the symbol of the very thing that we're going into, you know, and, and I, I, I see that, you know, often with people who are, you know, on fire with their pain from trauma and step into substance use to medicate the pain and that, yeah, but the, but the medication of that pain is that symptom that we say we're, we're treating addiction is actually the doorway into the, 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 the real healing of the soul that needs to happen. And so, you know, I, I'm just curious to, you know, you kind of teed that up for me. That was kind of what came up. Well, thank you, Andy. And uh, again, you expressed it beautifully. Uh, so I'll just reinforce and um, comment on your comments. Our symptoms are symbols. The soul talks in symbols and images. And that is kind of our or language, our base language um, that, that is spontaneous. The mind is its flow of images and they are being produced by our entire, by our organic and deep unconscious being. And we are, um, we all, we own that we, we affirm we have a collective unconscious. And so we've all inherited a wealth of symbols from our traditions, from other traditions, from human history that, that are all latent in us. Uh, medis, our contemporary medical and mental health communities treat symptoms as evidence of pathology that something has gone wrong and their goal is to eradicate the symptom to restore somebody uh, to conventional functioning. And you're right, that's backwards. 
that um, denies the value of the symbol and what our soul is trying to communicate. So rather than, uh, well, in your example, a, a veteran having nightmares of people he killed from the mainstream psychological interpretation, that's a troubling nightmare that we have to eradicate so he can get a good night's sleep. So we, can, we might analyze the dream as uh, your guilt and your trouble uh, with what you did, and we might throw medications at it to kill the dream activity and force you into a kind of zombie-like sleep. And so you're not having dreams, maybe you'll sleep for uh, enough hours to, to function. In contrast, and uh, just like you, I always, uh, I, I will tell people I'm working with, well, the mainstream psychological interpretation that you experienced before is the symptom eradication. And that's, if you've been in therapy or psychiatry before, that's usually how you were treated. But it's, that's the psychological interpretation but the spiritual interpretation that's been around for thousands of years and in many, many cultures is that what you offered, Andy, the spirits or the souls of the people whose lives you took are coming to visit you. You have an intimate connection with them forever. You married them by taking their lives. Your soul and their souls are joined and they want something from you. So walk into the encounter, have a really meaningful and I thou relationship with them, receive what they're asking for from you. And if you can deliver it and make peace with these spirits and in fact, make them your allies. And also as you witnessed, when we do that, when our warriors do that, it works. It works. They find out what the other soul wanted. They enter into a lifelong relationship with it. Often those souls become companions on the journey and their conscience, their conscience, guiding them to do right because of the pain that they suffered together from having done wrong. Uh, and, um, and it also helps restore um, the other survivors of the encounter. Mm. Um, we've, let me tell a quick story about this. Stories are so good. Uh, I was, um, I presented uh, a training at a vet center in the state of Washington. After my training, the director of the vet center, who was a Vietnam vet, asked for some private time in his office. And he said, I don't believe in the spiritual stuff at all, but I have nightmares every night of people I killed. And, he, and you said that the souls of the people we killed can come travel back here with us and stick to us and we have a lifelong relationship with them. Well, I, uh, I killed uh, Viet Cong uh, enemy on the battlefield and I went up to him and I took the homemade battle flag that he had been carrying. And that's my war souvenir. And now having listened to you, I think the souls that I killed came home with me and they're still living with me. So I still don't believe in this stuff, but would you take, I, and I won't go back to Vietnam with you, but will you take the flag and return it? Mm. 
Wow. All right. So I have good relations with the War Remnants Museum in Saigon, Ho Chi Minh City, which is the main museum of the American War. We arranged to have a ceremony of return of the flag as if it were warriors coming back. We had Vietnamese veterans in their uniforms as well as our veterans and civilians together in a large ceremony. We gave the flag an honorific return with poetry and music and speeches from both sides. And we thought the museum was gonna keep the flag, but as it turned out, it was homemade and they were able to read and translate it. And we found out which village in the Mekong Delta it originally came from. So we went to the village and we showed them the flag and oh my God, we found the family whose father and husband fell with that flag. And they didn't only thank us for the flag, they said, you brought our father's soul home to us. He's been wanting to come home and we've had dreams also that he's out there wandering. Vietnamese have the concept of the wandering soul when people don't have proper burial rites and rituals. So this was a wandering soul. The family had dreams of him and those dreams stopped when we returned the flag. And then I got back to the States and I had a phone call with our vet and he said, what the F did you do? <laughs> well, what do you mean, brother? My nightmares are gone, they stopped. We, what you said was true and I never believed it. I never believed in the spiritual life, but I'm sleeping like a baby now. And the souls really went home. So Vietnam, the Vietnamese considered the soul had returned and their father's soul came home and they could give him proper ritual and burial. And our warrior was finally released from what we could consider soul possession. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And these are real concepts, spirit embodied spirituality that we can turn around and use to guide our healing and transformation. That's how it works. So since you moved uh, more into this domain, it sounds like your work is a little more international. It's getting more um, attention from other, other parts of the world. Um, and we both, all three of us, know how the conventional mental health system is generally failing us. Understatement. Um, do you have any sense of where things are moving? Yeah, um, I'll mention Vietnam uh, as an example, um, but it's not only there, but I've gone there every year except this year because of the virus. So, but I, so I've been traveling to Vietnam since 2000. So I've gone every year since 2000 and I'm well networked there and I work with their uh, psychological community as well. This is an example of what's going on around the world. Uh, I actually feel in Vietnam in my tiny way, I, I'm trying to help our friends and colleagues there resist another form of Western invasion. And this is the psychiatric pharmaceutical invasion. I've actually been in public arenas with representatives of 
pharmaceutical companies in Vietnam who were there trying to convince Vietnamese people that they must have massive PTSD and severe national epidemic of depression because of what the wars must have done to them. Not, they don't. Mm -hmm. We could talk for another hour about why they don't, but they don't have chronic long-term PTSD. They had short-term acute PTSD right after the war through the 1970s, and they say they have not seen another serious wartime case since then of chronic PTSD. Not from war, from other, other things, of course. Um, so what we have, and this is true uh, really around the world, America or, and the Western world has been exporting our diagnostic criteria, exporting the training and education of mental health professionals in our Western American way of doing it and trying to apply that as if it were universal to other cultures that actually have completely different value systems, ideas, mindsets, um, lifestyles, and it doesn't match. Mm -hmm. So some of us are trying to be culturally sensitive and specific and non-diagnostic, non-pathological, but understand these experiences from within the cultural context, whereas some of our mainstream mental health powers are really trying to impose this interpretation and understanding on the entire planet and capitalize off it. Yeah. Now, do you, is the pushback stronger from other places? I mean, I would, my assumption would be that in the absence of corporate personhood and, and lobbying in some of these places, it's going to be harder for, uh, for the pharmaceutical cabal to get traction. But what are you seeing? Uh, I'm... Or is it, is it okay. uneven uh, in place uh, to place? I, I'm working with somebody in Albania who says, we don't have any good psychiatrists here, so I consult by Zoom with an American psychiatrist for my meds. Uh, yeah. um, this is new, so I'm talking to her about why and what are the meds for and what else can we do um, to, to work with your issues without the meds. Um, I'm working with, uh, I work in Greece a lot, as I do in Vietnam. I go there every year and I do the work for the Asclepian tradition. Ah. There is a strong reawakening in Greece uh, going back to their own ancient mythological traditions to use them in contemporary healing. So that's pushback. On the other hand, most of these countries don't have developed sophisticated graduate level education in psychology in the mental health fields. And so most of the people who practice um, go to American and British and Canadian universities to get their education. So they're educated here, then they bring our ways back there. So in Greece, I'm working with some clients who can't find a Greek therapist who can work with them on their dream interpretation because they're having mythological dreams in their own tradition, but their therapists don't know their myths. So they called me up to help me understand and interpret and work with the dreams that their own people don't know how to work with. Mm -hmm. So we are really in danger of losing so much from the traditional cultures. And in some ways, of course, the traditional cultures are pushing back.
and resisting this new invasion and saying it's not appropriate. Well, I think we covered a lot of ground. Um, <laughs> we would. Um, final thoughts, Andy? Um, I'm just really grateful for the conversation and I, you know, I'm, you know, I'm hopeful for the, you know, the, for the, the, that, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, you know, I can listen to this and I very much hear it, um, you know, in the, the, the resistance recovery um, world of, of this way of understanding this way of, 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 you know, not just looking at the inner life, but looking at the embodied life and um, for those in recovery, the embodied life is everything, you know, I mean, the, the whole thing is like, it's about talking about a substance. So like, you know, there's, you know, there's, it's, it's about it, you know, if that you can't be any more embodied than that, like the, you know, so I, you know, I, I, I'm, 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 as I'm kind of reflecting on this conversation, I'm really hopeful that, you know, kind of, you know, sometimes if you look at, you know, in, in warfare, they spend time, you know, they don't necessarily study the battles of the era. They study battles of another era. So because you can see, you know, you can see the movements and the decision-making and the stuff that goes on in, a, in, in another epoch, in another way, better than you can in your own, because your own is all kind of clouded up with personality and all that kind of stuff and technology. And, but when you get out of those things, so, you know, kind of, kind of real, you know, real studiers of these of of warfare will often study other epochs and i you know i'm hoping that you know as as the resistance recovery community listens to this they can kind of look at it through that you know yeah we've spent a lot of time talking about warriors but we're talking about we're talking about uh you know uh truly embodied spirituality in the in the face of trauma that's what we're talking about it's truly is 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 truly bring you know as as ed says you know um, making a home for our spirit, you know, make, you know, having our, having our spirit be, find a home and, and that, that I'm hopeful this conversation, cause it's, you know, it's one that's dear to my heart and one that I, you know, and, and, and it's one that I, you know, maybe know better certainly than the, than the, than the recovery journey, but I know, but I, I'm hopeful you can look at it as a way of, as a, outside part of that's this you know that you know this that's not mine but boy man i can i can take lessons from this because it's not mine and i'm hopeful that that's this that that you know that it can serve that purpose you know um for that because i i know that um you know at, at the heart of this is that that homecoming of the soul that um that is you know precipitated by the traumatic um, and, and, um, you know, that's a universal upon a universal. And so, you know, and that's the struggle, um, you know, we are people born for struggle and that what we're, we're, um, where that's what we're in it. We're all in it for, you know? So anyway, thank you. Thank you. Ed? I want to listen to Andy for hours. <laughs> thank you, Andy. We'll do more of that. Yes. Yeah, we will. Uh, well, again, I affirm what you both shared. Yes, our work is meant to be a homecoming for the soul. And we as priests and healers are meant to facilitate that homeward journey. And trauma is best uh, conceptualized, not as a, a terrible violent wound that breaks us, but rather 
a profound transformational experience that is potentially a portal to the sacred. Drama is a transformational portal to the sacred. And uh, I'll end with another story. Um, another Vietnam veteran that I worked, I actually took him back to Vietnam and we went to the very place this happened. He was in, uh, he was an armored personnel carrier driver and squad leader. He was leading a, a squad of six APCs when in the jungle when they were ambushed and they had a horrible firefight. He was sitting in the turret behind the machine gun as well as directing the other APCs. In the middle of this battle that was very costly to both sides, he did what we, what psychology calls dissociation. He dissociated. He felt his center of consciousness leave his body and go up into the palm trees that were over his head. And he watched the battle from the, uh, up in the palm tree. And he saw his APC, he saw his body. He saw his body fighting to survive down below. When the battle was over, his soul came back and he re-embodied. Every time he tried to tell a psychologist that, they said, oh, what a terrible experience you had. Severe defense mechanism of dissociation. Your body-soul connection broke. And boy, did that mess you up. And, uh, and then whenever he heard that, he quit the counseling because they didn't get it. When we were together and when we were in Vietnam, under the tree, he said, that was the most important spiritual experience of my life because it taught me I have a soul. Mm -hmm. And he taught me a soul is a real living experience. And it taught me my soul wants to live, wants to survive, and got me out of trouble during that battle without breaking the connection between body and soul. So I could see and watch safely and then return to my body and this, he's a very spiritual man and he meditates and prays deeply every day. He said, only after that experience did I start to meditate, did I even think there was a purpose to it, that I even know I had a soul. And my spiritual life actually began in that horrible battle in Vietnam. So instead of thinking of it as dissociative and wounding experience, it was a transformational experience that taught him his essential spirituality and his responsibility to attend that the rest of his life. So I'm with both of you that I hope and pray that our conversation today can be profound inspiration and guidance for so many of our colleagues uh, doing this work and trying to bring about soul healing and re-embodiment and a positive re-mythologizing of the world without losing what we've gained from rational and intellectual and conceptual thought. But let's Finally, put them back together. The rational and the intuitive, the left brain and the right brain. Dionysus and Apollo, they're really one. And it's our task, big healing task, to bring them all back together. Well, what I'd like to say is this. Um, a little while ago, I don't know what prompted it, it came to the realization that you know, I'm not an agent. I'm a, I'm a symptom. I'm a symbol. <laughs> I never thought of a symbol before. But the fact of, 
of your guys' presence and your work and your very being is symptomatic of something that's trying to happen. Well, it is happening. And so I, it, it, that insight really helped me because I, I don't feel so burdened that I have to make something happen. I have to be receptive to something that wants to happen that is happening. And so I'm deeply, um, I'm deeply honored to know you both and to share that with you. So with that, until next time, Namaste. Jesus grace. Thank you for joining us. For more information, you can find us at resistancerecovery.com.